Welcome to a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. Because it's a beautiful day. Mm-hmm. A breath of fresh air. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day. Hi, and welcome to the show. Hope all's terrific in your world. This week's guest is English multi-instrumentalist Andy McKay, who's best known as founding member of the British avant-garde art rock group Roxy Music. Andy played oboe and saxophone with the band and became known for his Chuck Berry-inspired duck walk during saxophone solos like this one. known for his pronounced quiff, his Star Trek sideburns and outlandish Motown-inspired stage costumes. He made a big contribution to the unique Roxy music look, much of which seemed to be a retro-futurist throwback to 1950s rock and rollers. As you're about to hear, Andy's worked with some incredible artists like Duran Duran, Mop the Hoople, John Mellencamp and Paul McCartney. And did I mention his songwriting credits? This one's definitely my favourite. to speak with you. If we can go back to the very start when you were at university and met Brian Eno, tell us what happened then. I had a kind of slightly pretentious kind of avant-garde performing group that that we'd done because I became very interested in experimental music at that time. And uh, we started doing a few with some people from the art department at Reading, doing some events and happenings and, and performings. And we ended up in Winchester, where Eno was at art school at that time. And he, okay. he came to the performance and we started chatting and became friends. Um, we sort of lost touch after that. And I bumped into him on a tube train in London about four years later, just when I'd been reintroduced to Brian Ferry, who I, I knew very, very slightly before that. And it just was a sort of natural fit from there to say, hey, Brian, I've just you know, met this guy. You should come along and, and you know, do the synthesizer, you know, because I'm doing oboe and sax. So. And it sort of went from there. So you had already joined Brian in Roxy Music at that time? Well, the, the early history of Roxy Music is, is sort of always slightly represented different ways. Brian had come down from Newcastle and was living in London and had with him the bass player from the band he'd been in in Newcastle University and was just basically Brian and and Graham Simpson were working together. Brian was writing songs and had a piano and a kind of harmonium, I seem to remember. And I was introduced through another mutual friend and uh, she said, oh, I know this guy who's starting a band and I was trying to start a band. And I just bought this early synthesizer called a VCS3 marvellous thing it looks sort of like an l shape with pins and buttons and, and of course that it. that was sorry to interrupt you that was the very early days of the synthesizer wasn't it of incorporating yeah, yeah. that into song but what was great about the vcs3 is that up till then most electronic music had been in studios in in, in kind of radio facilities or, or similar and the vcs3 was was expensive it cost 300 pounds which in 19 
1971 was That's an awful lot of money. A few thousand now. So I was kind of looking for ways to use that. So I kind of turned up at Brian's front door and said in hi, and he said hi. We went in, played around a bit. And then I ended up playing quite a lot of oboe and alto sax, which I played then. And I brought the synthesizer, but I couldn't, we used it for treatments on Brian's voice. We made it, you know, put it through various things. And I said, yeah, I know this guy who'd be really good at operating this. You know, he's not really a musician, he doesn't play any specific instrument. And so Eno came along at that point. We actually auditioned for other players. And we auditioned for drummers, which when we ended up with Paul Thompson. We had a guitarist back then who had the site, a name guitarist called Davey O'List. We'd been in a band called The Nice, what went on to be part of Emerson Lake and Palmer. played with us for a while but didn't really work out. Brian thought he had a slight name and we needed that and then we auditioned for guitarists and, and Phil then came and joined us just before we started recording so from that point on the, the, uh, the lineup was stable except that uh, Graham Simpson left because he had a nervous breakdown, alas. Uh, yeah. And so we never had a permanent bass player after that. And that was the early 70s. You were accepted quite widely really early on, weren't you? It was something so new and different, everyone embraced it. There was something kind of quite unusual, maybe wouldn't happen so easily now, is that we saw ourselves as, we, we were kind of, Amateurs, you know, we, we really liked what we were doing and we, we kind of played all the music that we liked. So Brian liked a lot of kind of uh, 50s vocal bands and doo-wop and stuff. He liked jazz a lot. I didn't really like jazz, but I had some classical stuff. Plus we all loved ordinary rock and roll and pop music. And we also had this element of avant-garde and experimental music. We didn't really think about it, but we assumed, I think, that the closest model would probably be the Velvet Underground, that we were a band that would work in that kind of milieu of, 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 sort of slightly arty, experimental things. Standing on the corner Suitcase in my hand Jackson's corset, Jane is in her vest And me, I'm in a rock and roll band Riding us studs back at Jim You know, those were different times all, all the poets, they studied rules of verse And those ladies, they rolled their eyes very well received and, and you know but uh, as being a bit weird and then the single that we released Virginia Plain which wasn't on the album became a top 10 hit it was it was like number seven I think in the UK chart that completely changed it because that suddenly meant we became like pop stars basically <laughs> 
you know, and we could, could play quite big venues and we had followers and, you know, people would run after us in the street. It was kind of odd. So we then moved into that role that we had, I think, of being sort of an, an avant-garde band in some ways, but largely, you know, kind of mainstream. but well, mainstream pop, right? And, how did that affect you when that changed? I mean, you must have been incredibly surprised both at the success of that single, but then the after effects of it would have taken you completely by surprise. Yeah, I mean, I was actually still doing a day job when, when, when we went into the studio. I was teaching music at a comprehensive school in London, which I was not very good at, but was kind of quite <laughs> fun. I actually left at half term. I, I was... I, I, so didn't go back. I sent them a letter and said, "I'm really sorry. I've, you know, I've had to uh, to leave." They're very nice about it. And so then we kind of immediately became professional musicians, and you know things moved fairly steadily. You know, I mean, you know, we we we, we were playing quite big venues. You know, yeah. our, our first date was at a, a festival, which was terrifying, but you know it launched us quite Is well. It? supported Bowie at the, the, the Rainbow, which was a very good gig. We then played that. It was a, the Rainbow is a kind of large theatre venue in London, about um, 3,000-seater, a very, very good place at that time for rock and roll. Did you have to pinch yourself? I mean, you've gone from ordinary, matter-of-fact music teacher with, with lots of students who would have looked up to you, I'm sure, to having girls chase you down the street and play huge venues supporting people like David Bowie, it would have been like uh, totally surreal, I can imagine. It was. I, the, the, we, were, we weren't super young. We were kind of uh, 25, 26. It's not exactly um, old. Not exactly old, but, you know, kind of, you think you're quite old when you're 25. You think, <laughs> that, you know, life is passing you by. And, you know, some musicians at that time had been around playing professionally since they were 17 or 18. You know, yeah. some of the English blues of players, they were guys who had just you know, been doing it for a long time. And I think some of the established bands slightly resented the fact that I think people thought that we were more manufactured than we were. I think they thought that there was some kind of big organization behind us which is not true i mean brian is an organization in himself and he was he's very incredibly proactive about setting things up and working but yeah it sort of just it all moved fairly naturally and i suppose we were lucky at that time record companies supported you in a way that they don't know i mean the record companies hardly exist now they just collect yeah. money but at that time we, we ended up with a small management company who put us with Island Records, who really liked, you know, that they the artists they liked, they would support, even if they didn't sell enough records in the first year, they they support you for your second album and third. We were lucky we sold quite well on the first album, but that backup of having someone who would, who would you know, advance money for you to, to record so we could use their, their recording studio and also get a decent producer. You know, those things don't happen as much now. I mean, you need to have a big hit right away. The 
album sales, so vinyl sales, were very big then. And, and people would save up and go out on a Saturday morning, go to the record shop, look through the racks, notice a cover that they liked, you know, and so that was the covers were very important. That's right. Uh, How different and, it is these days. And you buy it for your whatever pounds it was and take it home, play it, draw your Try it out, and, yeah. And, you know, you could make money from selling records. You didn't make money from touring then. We'd lost money touring all the time. Really? Um, throughout the whole of the 1970s, we never made a profit on touring. How come? And now, well, people make all their money out of touring and, and hope that they'll sell a few physical copies at the on gig. On the side. I mean, How come yeah. we didn't make money out of touring then? No one did. At that time, venues didn't have their own PA. Nowadays, you turn up at almost any gig and there will be a house PA that you almost certainly be okay to use. Right. But people just go around with three articulated lorries with a big PA in it with bass bins and a mixing desk and speakers and, you know, yeah. the whole stage set up, lighting rig. So that was ruinously expensive, you know. I the mean, band had to pay for all of that. The band had to pay for that, essentially. Right. And I think ticket prices weren't that high. People now will pay, you know, for a, a theatre ticket, people will pay £100. And for a, a, a rock concert, you know, in a decent venue, you know, anything from 50 to £100 is normal. I think back then, people didn't expect that. They weren't, they expected to pay, you know, a few shillings or whatever, back right. in old money. They actually, England didn't go decimal until 1970s. And that's okay. We come from yeah. shillings and pence too. Yeah. We've done it before young. us. Possibly, but because I'm maybe confusing it with joining the European Union. Because that's <laughs> okay, I don't know about that one. So you did continue touring, though, despite losing money, having done so, because that was the only yeah. way to, I mean, we, to we, get known. We made money. We made money selling records. I mean, that was the difference. That, that, that you you saw, you did a tour to promote record sales, and you also used radio and, and radio interviews and things backed up. What you're doing. So we made money. It took a long time to pay off all of the debts of, of recording and touring. But you know, if, essentially, the record companies would advance you money. Songwriting is the thing that makes most money, and Brian was doing most of that. So you know, it wasn't it wasn't that easy. But you know, we were sending large volumes of records, and we were on a reasonable sort of deal. And I, you know, I think that's just the way it worked then. Everyone toured to promote their records. Roxy Music toured relentlessly and with their thrillingly strange 1972 debut announced themselves as a band that were unlike anyone else. They created a new kind of music out of Stax, Oboes and Marilyn Monroe. Back in a sec with more. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Thanks for hanging in. With roots in Britain's glam and art rock movements, Roxy Music's flamboyant mix of pop hooks and avant-garde adventurousness created quite a stir. The band's debut album, Roxy Music, was driven largely by the creative tension between suave singer Brian Ferry and experimentally inclined keyboardist Brian Eno. Were you having fun during those years? Oh, yeah, a huge amount of fun. I mean, we went, you know, went to America in, in the beginning of 19... 19- well, over the winter of 72, 73, which is fantastic. I, you know, I'd always dreamt of going to America, which is brilliant. You know, we, were all, we toured Europe a lot. We were very big in Germany. We were, we were big in France for a while, Holland, all of those countries. And we went to Australia in, yeah. I think, 74, was it? I think and so. I think Brian had had a solo, had, his solo records did quite well. He did covers albums. And, and I think they did really rather well in Australia. So when we went there, he was kind of, you know, better known really than the band, which was interesting. You know, that, that happens in some countries. You know. Yeah. Uh, I seem to remember all the crazy outfits that you guys wore and the mad haircuts. What was that all about? You know what? We just, I think we just were having fun, really. I mean, you know, again, we it was partly the, the kind of arty background, you know, the fact that we, our friends tended to be fashion designers, photographers, painters, filmmakers, not so much musicians. Um, right. If they were musicians, they were often sort of slightly... More highbrow. Uh, yeah. And I think we just sort of, just to have fun, we'd be talking to someone and say, oh, would you design me something? And I'd, I'd like something that looks like, you know, a space 
you know, adventure, like a, a Star Trek or something, you know, a little bit kind of funny. And <laughs> then I had a, we had a hairdresser friend who's actually credited on the first album who dyed my hair. You know, they could just do hair dye. I think I was one of the first people. I remember I had my, all of this part was dyed blue and some streaks <laughs> at the side. And I had it done in, in Knightsbridge in Watch yeah. Park, Central London. And uh, I remember sort of walking out of the salon and going back down the road to get a bus or maybe even a taxi. And, and people were kind of slowing down. <laughs> <laughs> not actually a show off but I think yeah and, and we also you know we, we knew that what, what we wore and how we looked was going to sell what we were doing and you know I mean obviously if, if we weren't the sort of musicians who, who thought that you know you should just do what you want and, and it doesn't matter whether the public like it I mean we were we were popular musicians we, we were we were making pop music. and, yeah. and, and You were appealing pop. to the masses, that's right. Yeah. When, when, when you look back at yourself in those days and you see video clips of the way that you looked and moved and, of course, you were known particularly for this Chuck Berry-inspired duck walk that you did during your sax solos. <laughs> what do you think of yourself when you see your younger self doing all this? I think the reason is, actually, as I said, we were really very shy. I mean, Brian Ferry and Brian Eno are actually surprisingly shy. And I think that in those circumstances, it's all or nothing. You can't go on stage just wearing your day clothes and, and play, you know, like which is what, say, jazz musicians might do. Just or someone like Neil Young. Yeah, or, or you know, going close your eyes, play. Yeah, that's audience. right. Ignore yeah, the audience, that's right. And I mean, the only way I could do it without being nervous was to sort of dress up and, and treat it as a theatrical performance, really. Right. So you're kind um, of play acting. So, so putting on the outfit and some makeup, which was sort of stage makeup. I mean, we didn't actually wear ladies' makeup, but, you know. And uh, that just gave you the, the kind of the thing, okay, you're out there and you have to perform. And, you know, in the very early days, Brian was too shy to stand in the middle of the stage. This, this, <laughs> was he? It was kind of back in 1971 before we really um, got the record deal and things. Yeah. Uh, we, we did some some dates some, when we were unsigned. And Brian would play the keyboard at the side and I would be standing with the sax and the drums in the middle and Phil. And Eno was either at the side, the other side from Brian, or he'd be at the mixing desk where he used to have a synthesizer at the mixing he could, desk. He could hide behind there. while he was mixing. And we had to persuade Brian to ferry to, to go out centre stage and say, look, stand there and, and sing, you know. Um, <laughs> That's hilarious. I mean, as somebody in the audience, you never think that the people that you're watching strutting on the stage would have any qualms about performing like that but of course it's it's like anything you you're just human and it takes a bit of getting used to yeah there's a new sensation a fabulous creation a danceable solution to teenage revolution do the strand love when you feel love it's the new way Tables. Quack, leave this place on Mabel's. Slow and gentle, 
from Roxy Music's For Your Pleasure album. It was a song about a made-up dance craze that tipped a hat to the fashionable London street of the same name. We always saw it as, as like this element of fun, you know, you cannot take rock and roll too seriously. It's like, you know, it's, it's, it, it can be serious. It's serious in people's lives often, but in itself, it's not that serious. Andy, you talk about the fact that Brian was the main songwriter, yet you also co-wrote some of those huge hits, didn't you? Yeah, I wrote... um, In the early days, Brian did all the songwriting, which became then a slight bone of contention because, you know, we were writing and I think some, you know, we were getting to the point where Brian wrote the most amazing lyrics, the, 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 the greatest lyric writer of his era, in my opinion. But his musical structures were quite simple. He tended to like use you know, one or two chords and, and huh. sort of like sing on top of them. And I felt that we needed a bit more structure. So I, on the third album, um, Stranded, I, I had the song, Song for Europe, which is a you know, much more kind of structured. I mean, nowadays you call it slightly prog rock, you know, which we never yes. thought of ourselves as prog rock. But, <laughs> but it's got a classical sort of element to it. Here as I sit at this empty cafe Thinking of you I remember all those moments Lost in wonder That will never again Though the world is my oyster It's only a shell full of memories That was the drug was the other song that was a big hit Well that was a huge hit Tell me a little bit about Love is the Drug Tell me about what you were writing about there because I mean everyone was running down the street singing that song Yeah I mean the way Roxy worked was that, that when we were writing songs, Phil and, and, and myself, I mean, Eno never wrote any songs on Roxy albums. It's a very interesting thought that he wrote a lot of great songs which were on his first solo album, which might have been great Roxy songs, but you know, the, the politics of the band were such that that didn't happen. But we, we would put together the kind of chords and the, the riff or feel, and then we'd play it in the studio or in rehearsal and then we'd work on it. And, and Brian would, would then kind of listen to it, and maybe hum along. But basically, he would then take it away and write a, a top line and, and a lyric that went with it, which often we didn't hear until uh, we nearly finished the track. Sometimes overworked the track. And then he would turn up and deliver this amazing vocal performance in the studio. And he, so he always worked that way. And it was always the first lyrics afterwards. Showing up, showing up, hit and run 
1975's Love is the Drug started life as a distinctly Englishy instrumental that Andy McKay composed on a Wurlitzer electronic piano before it became more groove-driven. He says his original tempo was slow, with a majestic sweeping feel that moved in a dreamy and ambient direction. But Brian and drummer Paul Thompson pushed it along to make it more dancey. It's arguably Roxy Music's best-known song and is often described as the band's disco tune, although the forceful rhythms seem to border a bit on Cuban funk. It's a song that contains one of rock's most famous bass lines. According to Brian Ferry, it's all about hitting the streets in search of some casual, no-strings-attached sex. If you know, around 1976, I worked on a TV drama series called Rock Follies. Yes, I do. Uh, that was actually a big success for me. It was the number one album, and the series won a BAFTA award, and a very exciting time for me. Now, I worked on that with an American writer, dramatist, and songwriter called Howard Schumann, and Howard wrote all the lyrics first. So I then did this completely much more like a West End musical where, you know, you, you have a lyric writer and a songwriter right. and the drama and the songs were part of the drama. So that was a completely different way of using the sort of songwriting craft. Process. Right, yeah, yeah. But with, uh, with Roxy, was it always a harmonious process or was there were there disagreements uh, between you? No, there are plenty of disagreements. I mean, I don't think rock bands are ever that harmonious, really. I mean, not, not all the time. Yes, there, there, there were there were disagreements, and I think you know sometimes you know someone would argue for something being included or not included or changed, and sometimes you know you approved right, sometimes you approved wrong. But yeah, I mean there, there there were resentments and arguments, and I mean particularly I think as I mentioned earlier, the the thing about songwriting and and music is that songwriting money uh, comes from from record one so whenever a record is sold the publishers and the writers of the song earn some money yeah but the people who've actually played the music and made the album you've got to pay for the album recording costs before you earn anything so you might have spent you know what hundreds of thousands of pounds in today's money on recording until you sold enough records to get that money back you the band don't actually earn anything. Right. But the songwriter is earning. Now, a lot of bands split it and say all songs are written by all of the band, which I don't think is necessarily fair either. And sometimes, you know, a great song is what makes you successful. So it's it's the thing, you know, without Brian's songs, we wouldn't have made it. At the same time, there were probably Without some your music, you wouldn't have made it. So yeah, it so needs one hand to wash the other, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, sometimes the band sells the song, sometimes the song sells the band. That balance is a tricky one. And, and I think most bands would have had uh, some sort of disagreements about that. Or not, not disagreements, resentments, whatever. And, you know, being, being you don't want to break up and storm out. And, you know, you, you be pragmatic, decide that what you're doing is still worth doing. And, you know, I'm very pleased we did. And I, I very much, you know, I like... Uh, the, you know, the later albums that maybe wouldn't have happened if we'd all sort of argued too much. The enigmatic Brian Eno had waved goodbye to his bandmates in Roxy Music in 1973. There was always a friendly rivalry between Brian Eno and Brian Ferry, from who could steal the spotlight on stage to who could get the most girls backstage. It basically came down to Ferry's natural stage present fighting it out with Eno's outlandish wardrobe and sonic delights. There was plenty of other dissension in the ranks too and the band decided to take some time out. 
Stay tuned as their story continues. This is a breath of fresh air with Sandy Kay. It's a beautiful day. Welcome back. We're chatting with Roxy Music co-founder, saxophonist, oboist and songwriter Andy McKay. Despite Brian Eno leaving the band some years earlier, his influence lingered. When the band did come back, they moved into a smoothly sophisticated dance pop direction that culminated with 1982's Avalon. I very much like Avalon. It's one of my favourite Roxy albums. Now the party's over I'm so tired Then I see you coming Out of nowhere Much communication In emotion Without conversation Or a notion became the band's biggest commercial success yet, launching the singles More Than This and the title track. But it was also Roxy Music's last new studio effort, and it set the stage for both Brian Ferry's and Andy McKay's successful solo careers. You ended up releasing two instrumental solo albums of your own in the 70s, and then you worked with a whole lot of people, including Duran Duran, Mott the Hoople, John Cale, Pavlov's Dog. So many people, John Mellencamp, Paul McCartney. Are there any favourites amongst those? Well, I mean, working with McCartney would be the sort of the thing Highlight. that was exciting. I didn't, I didn't actually play very much on McCartney's records. I was, I went to, the, I was in the sessions quite a lot for what the Pipes of Peace and uh, Tug of War were recorded. The, the sessions were sort of spread across two albums, so they they were in the studio for quite a long time, and and part of that material came out as types of piece and some of it tug of war. So obviously working with Paul was like, you know, great. I mean, and with, with George Martin producing, you know, and Jeff Emmerich engineering, I mean, it was like a dream, you know. So, uh, and, you know, I was quite friendly with, with Paul at that time and, and Linda I liked very much. So that, that was great. It's a tug of war What with one thing and another, it's a tug of war. We expected more, but with one thing and another, we were trying to outdo each other in a tug of war. Not the hoople, the guys, I, I, they were in the studio. I mean, it, this often happened. There's a big studio in central London at Oxford Circus, actually, as central as you can get, called Air Studios. It was George uh-huh. Martin's studio. And in its heyday, there were, I think, th- three or four studios. And you, you would get you know major bands in all of them. So you would have Roxy in one room. And, Mott Hooper in another and Zeppelin in another. And you tended to, you, know, you bump into people, you know, in the corridor or having a coffee. And so quite often someone would say, oh, we, we need some sax on this. You know, we've just been listening to this track. And so I'd just go in and... Pop in next door and do it, yeah. And do it, which was, you know, a nice, nice way to work. And then obviously people like Duran Duran, who are, are big fans, big Roxy fans, obviously 10 years younger than us. And, you know, um, Duran Duran inducted us into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, which was a very nice kind of tribute from them. And I think they wanted to work with me and, and you know, with, with Phil and because they admired the band and, you know, so that was another thing. So, yeah, I did. I mean, I was there for a session player in, in the sense of ever sort of doing it for a living. I sort of tended to do it for bands I knew. And sometimes for, for a young band would, would ask me to play. And if they're bold enough to ask, you nearly always <laughs> You'd <yes>. oblige. <laughs> so it's my, I tell musicians, think of the person you most want to play with and ask them to do it. And they'll probably say yes. It's quite interesting. You, know. huh? you okay. always have to be too grand and say no, but they often say, yeah, OK. Well, that's fabulous. Why did Roxy Music break up come 1983? I think there'd always been from Brian particularly, a feeling that his solo career and Roxy ran in parallel, so that in the 70s, 
Brian, who, who is, you know, works very hard. He can never stop working. I mean, you know, it's his life. He just doesn't, you know. And so he would be making, uh, when we're doing Roxy albums, he'd then immediately do one of his solo covers albums, These Foolish Things and Smoke Next to Your Eyes, all of those. They ask me how I knew My true love was true reply something here inside cannot be started wanting to put his own songs onto his solo album. So he would then have a, an album which had some covers like Let's Stick Together on, on an album with Brian Originals. And I think that by the time we'd finished Avalon, Brian had songs that he thought, well, these are slightly more Brian Ferry songs than Roxy songs. And I think everyone took more time to make albums. So you couldn't really do both. So I think at that point he thought, well, actually, I will now go off. And I will just be Brian Ferry solo artist. And he made that album, Boys and Girls, a very good album. Stave to Love, you know, I wish that had been a Roxy song. It's a, it's a great yeah. song. in the uh, 2000s and started recording but never finished an album. So there is sort of the, a slightly unfinished chapter there. It would be nice to get back in the studio, who knows. I'm you think like, that's a possibility? Uh, it's always a possibility, but <laughs> well, we can still play, I think <laughs> it's still possible, yeah. And you keep up but, with all, uh, all the other guys? Yeah, yeah. I talk to Phil quite often. I talk to Brian, so, you know, we, we phone each other. We, and Paul Thompson I would keep in touch with. And, you know, Phil has, has, has worked on most of my other projects and, and Paul. Yeah. Oh, well, um, we'll keep our fingers crossed that maybe you guys will come back together again, get into studio and hit the well, road one more time. It, it, yeah, there is some unreleased material around it, not finished, but you never know, it might happen. But I'm busy, you know, as busy yeah, you, as I want. Yeah, you're doing so much your, yourself, aren't you? And, uh, and funnily enough, that that Rock Follies project is sort of suddenly 40 years later that it's become uh, much more contemporary because it was it was about women and, and the women being exploited and women in music being exploited and about some gay issues so it was right. kind of way ahead of its time yeah and people are sort of sometimes rediscovering that so that's you know quite fun there's I wrote a lot of songs for that Dreams 
Follies and its sequel, Rock Follies of 77, were musical dramas shown on British TV in the 70s. The storyline followed the ups and downs of a fictional female rock band called The Little Ladies as they struggled for recognition and success. The band was made up on screen of talented session musicians as well as the three lead actresses who actually proved they could sing and the spin-off album of music from the series entered the UK charts at number one. We had an orchestra and a conductor, a great cast. So we, I said to Phil, why don't we do some orchestral arrangements of Roxy songs, a sort of a crossover rock classic project. So we did some arranging, got, got some friends to help with the string arrangements and stuff. And the first half of the concert was, was the rock symphony arrangements. And uh, those are also out. And that was great. It sort of worked really well. It went down very well with the audience. And we were all set to do a tour. We were going to play some cathedrals and a few sort of other venues. So we would wow. do the, the Psalms as part of it and then the Rock Symphony, you know, so you got a nice acoustic and things. And, and we had to cancel it because... COVID. You know, it was the one I made back in the early 80s after I'd been to China called Resolving Contradictions. there from Andy McKay's Resolving Contradictions, his second solo studio album from 1978. The record's a concept album with lots of references to the Chinese culture. The touring thing is difficult because the other solo project I did a few years back was Andy McKay and the Metaphors, an album called London, New York, Paris, Rome, which is an arrangement of sort of film tunes and also is another deconstructed post-rock right. kind of album an instrumental and I wanted to take that on tour but I had a harp player and and Paul Thompson was drumming I had a, a great experimental guitarist and synth player a great classical keyboard player and it was just too expensive yeah but that's an album I, I like very much I'm sort of happy with it hey, fellas, what's the big we only got 24 hours yeah so much for talking to me Andy I really you. appreciate your time greetings to all my friends in Australia Thank all you. the best were you lucky enough to catch Roxy Music recently as they reunited to celebrate their 50th anniversary from all accounts these guys in concert are still pretty awesome thanks to Rick in Leeds in the UK for asking me to have a chat with Andy McKay and don't forget, if you'd like to hear from somebody too, all you've got to do is send me a message through the website, abreathoffreshair.com.au. I'd be only too happy to try and get that artist onto the show. Thanks for your company again today. It's been terrific having you along, and I really hope you've enjoyed the show. If you'd like to catch up with any back episodes, just head to your favourite podcast platform. 
I'll look forward to being back with you again same time next week. Have fun in the meantime, won't you? Bye now. Because it's a beautiful day mm-hmm. You've been listening to A Breath of Fresh Air with Sandy Kay. Beautiful day. Oh, baby, any day that you're gone away. It's a beautiful day.